how to respond to the scientist who states he will be scooped if he shares his data. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Andrew Vickers, biostatistician at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, New York City. Thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be here. In a recent article you authored in the New York Times, Cancer Data, Sorry, You Can't Have It, you stated researchers, when asked for raw data on a published article, would often refuse. What were their reasons, and where is this going? Well, very often they would not give us a reason. I'd read some paper, I'd say, oh, you know, this is interesting. I was wondering if you could send me a little bit more information about it, perhaps even some of the raw data from perhaps one of the groups. And there would often be a point-blank refusal. No, you can't have the data, or I'm not going to release the data at this point. But some of the investigators who I carried on email correspondence with, after a time, it would start to emerge that their their real fear was that if they released their raw data, it would harm their careers in some way. And that would happen in, in two different ways. One is that they were frightened that if I got hold of their data and did some kind of analysis, it would disprove work that they'd done. It would disprove their analyses, and that would make them look bad. And they were also, they wanted to exploit their data and, and publish new analyses on the basis of what they'd found out, and they didn't want me doing that. They didn't want to be scooped by somebody else. Is cancer research being treated then by the investigator as his own personal property? I don't think there's any question of that. Very often, the type of response, the sort of wording that was used in these responses to data requests is, I'm not prepared to release my data to you, or this is my study, and I don't want you looking at my data. So I think clearly a lot of the investigators were seeing the data not as the property of the cancer research community as a whole, or even as the property of cancer patients, but as their own personal property. The patient filled in the questionnaire or something that they'd reported some events to the investigator, and then that was the investigators rather than the patients. Well, isn't there a danger that the public's perception will be that clinical trials are for the benefit of the researcher rather than the benefit of the patient? I think that's absolutely the case. There's great distrust of clinical research in this country. And in fact, many clinical trials are being done abroad right now because American clinical researchers are unable to find patients who are willing to take part in clinical trials. And there have, of course, been notorious examples. The Tuskegee study is is probably the, the most notorious in which clinical researchers have done research that hasn't been in the best interest of the patients, but has given them nice scientific kudos and padded their CVs appropriately. I think the failure to release raw research data is playing into the public's perception that research is done for the benefit of the researcher rather than for the benefit of current and future patients. You know, federal funding for research is certainly drying up, and the medical community, the research community, is having to turn to private funding for much of their research. And it's possible that the legal documents that are signed with their funders may prevent them from releasing this information. But one begins to wonder that the private investors are being protected, and therefore the shareholders are being protected at the expense of the clinical trial and therefore the patients. Well, certainly the involvement of the pharmaceutical companies raises a a whole new level of complexity. I mean, it's just an interesting story. I had my article published in the New York Times, and I got literally dozens of emails from 
patients and researchers and uh, all sorts of different individuals. One was a, a professor of philosophy in Utah saying, you know, this this was great. I really enjoyed your, your article. I, I really agree with what you're saying. Now, I actually had two emails saying they disagreed with me. And one of them was from the director of clinical research at a pharmaceutical company. And we had a little back and forth, and I, I wrote back to this individual. And I said, all right, well, just, just tell me, what do you think? Do you think that pharmaceutical companies should release raw data from their trials? And got no answer. So I said, look, if you, I emailed him again. I said, look, you know, if, if you don't answer me, I'll assume you don't want to answer. Never heard anything back from this individual. So I think we can assume, in speaking from this one particular individual who, you know, as I said, major position at a major pharmaceutical company, was unwilling to answer a very simple question about whether pharmaceutical companies should release raw data. And my guess is that they don't. And my guess also is that that's a, that's a major problem because it means that others can't check on the conclusions that are drawn by pharmaceutical company statisticians and researchers. And of course, the most obvious example of this is the, is the Vioxx study. So this was an analgesic that was given to patients. And in the clinical trial, some patients who received the drug appear to have had heart problems. And it's been alleged that the drug company didn't report those data in the journal article and that they sort of suppressed that data. Now, had they had to provide a full raw data, this full spreadsheet reporting on what had happened to every single patient on that trial, it seems at least possible that an independent statistician looking at those data would have picked up those heart problems earlier, and that would possibly have saved lives. We've discussed that this is a long-standing problem. What does the researcher really do to protect himself and still, at the same time, advance science for the benefit of the patients? Well, I think it's a great question. I do think researchers should release raw data from their studies, but that doesn't mean anything goes. We just can't have raw data flying around on the web and anyone doing whatever they they want with it. So actually, I, I published a code of conduct both for the individuals who are releasing data and for those individuals who wish to use that raw data. And some of the, the issues that, are in, that come up are, for example, I state that if you want to publish any results, any analyses from using raw data that somebody else has collected, you have to contact the uh, an investigator who is responsible for, con- for collecting the data and have them have a look at what you did. But it's quite possible. These are the people that know the data. They understand how it's collected. And, and you're quite possible you may have misunderstood something and done an analysis wrong. And I've also stated that if you want to publish your analysis, either an investigator from the original study should be involved and be a co-author on your publication, or they should be given an opportunity to respond in a, in a separate commentary. So those are sort of simple, common-sense guidelines that you can put in place that's going to protect both the researchers that produce raw data that would be shared, and of course, the general public, because we don't want a situation where people release raw data, other scientists do invalid analyses that end up in the scientific sphere or or the public arena without sufficient informed debate, which would be very much helped by the inclusion of the original authors. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Vickers, biostatistician at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and we're discussing the researchers that refuse to release their raw data which ultimately 
may cause harm to patients. You mentioned how internet has changed the exchange of information, and I couldn't help but be struck by the internet software movement or community open source community. This is where the source code is released for any new programs, and anybody can use this new software, and all they have to do is impart where it came from. This is done, of course, with intellectual properties having to do with the Internet and software. But couldn't the same thing be done with medical information? I'm a statistician, and often in the course of my work, I have to look up some formula. You know, I have dozens of textbooks in my office, but generally speaking, if I want to look up a formula quickly, I look at Wikipedia. And the main advantage of doing that is I'm pretty sure that formula is going to be right, because if it isn't, someone's going to spot it pretty quickly and change it. And in many senses, Wikipedia is a very nice sort of model for how scientific research should be. If the data are out there in the open, everyone should have an opportunity to comment on that data and analyze it for themselves. What we're stuck with right now in medical research is much more of the Encyclopedia Britannica model, where you, know, you have the authority figure and they produce their research results. You know, they will you know, write their authoritative article on Peter the Great or whatever, and it's very, very difficult to question. We've talked about the researcher's problem. What can we do to force his hand to make this problem improve? I think you don't really get dramatic change in the the behavior of the scientific community without there being a very good incentive for that. There's something interesting that's been going on comparably in the open access movement. Now, open access says that the research results from publicly funded studies need to be available to absolutely everybody free of charge. So you're an American taxpayer, you've paid for federally funded research through your tax dollars, you should be able to read the results of that research. And now that there was a few years ago, there was a rule that if you published a paper, and that paper was based on research funded by the US government, you had to say, you know, you were encouraged to send a copy of your paper to the National Library of Medicine, and they would put it up on the internet. What happened was nobody did it. And I think they they worked out like two, three, or 4% of papers that should have been sent to the National Library of Medicine were actually sent. So now they just changed the rule. And they said, you have to. If you want to get money from the U.S. government to do medical research, you have to prove that any money that we've previously given you has resulted in research results being available online for the American public to read. This is what's happened, and I'm sure it's going to, there's going to be a big change in the behavior of the community. So I really think that we do need a, a stick here. My own view is I think it's going to be very difficult for the government to force researchers to release raw data. But I think the journals could do it. If the journal said, no, you don't get to publish your paper unless you send us the raw data, and we'll publish the raw data on our website, researchers aren't not going to publish their results. That's the currency of the academic career. And I think you would see overnight a big change in the availability of raw data. If you do use the internet source for raw data, what is the peer review likely to be? I've actually been asked this uh, on a number of occasions by scholarly publishers. And I have to say, I don't really understand the issue here at all. When I've done this, I've published raw data sets on the internet. 
we send our paper for peer review. And the paper says, you know, we took these patients and they were randomized into these two different groups and this is what happened to them. And here are our results when we did the statistical analysis. And that gets subject to peer review. And the reviewer says, oh, tell us more about how you randomized or, or don't you think you should analyze the data in a slightly different way? And that's fine. And we publish our paper. The raw data is not subject to peer review. That just goes entirely separately. It gets uploaded as a supplementary file. And it goes, uh, you know, as a sort of appendix to the main document. Well, if you do publish the raw data, I'm sure you'll add a conclusion. That conclusion might be subject to peer review. What happens then? You would have the entire paper describing the trial and describing the results of the trial and drawing your conclusions. Now, that will be peer-reviewed whether or not you add in a raw data set. What I'm saying is you've got to add in your raw data set. You've got to allow other scientists to reproduce your findings. The keystone of science is reproducibility. If you don't publish your raw data, your results are not reproducible and therefore are arguably not scientific. I want to thank Dr. Andrew Vickers for being our guest today, and we've been discussing the need to release raw data so that patients ultimately are not harmed. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.